knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Jack Dennis is a longtime guide, author, television personality, and one of the early pioneers in fly fishing. In this two-part episode with Jack, we discuss how he got his start in the fly fishing industry, some of the most famous names in the business, his television series, the annual One Fly competition, his renowned Humpy Fly, and more. Let's just start from the very beginning. So we will open with where were you born and raised? I was born in Jackson, Wyoming. When I was five years old, uh, my mother had to be hospitalized and my grandparents took over. My father was still flying and they and they took over for until I was about 12 between the two of them raising me. And my grandfather had interest in ranches in Jackson Hole where I was born. I was born. I was kind of born because my father was flying for a movie company and he was coming in bringing movie people in for hunting. And and uh, my mother, of course, was with my grandparents there and they, they always left in like uh, middle October. And he was at a hunting camp and I got, I was supposed to be born in Los Angeles, but uh, I got born in Jackson. And then, so I spent every year of my summer with my grandfather in Jackson Hole. And they eventually sold the ranch to the park. And I hung around Carmichael's Tackle Shop when I was a kid. And my grandfather had enough money uh, to hire a guy two or three times a week. And so I, I I learned to fly fish when I was five at Lewis Lake. Reel, don't reel, Fluger medalist, cane rod, reel, don't reel, you know. And then I, I never even saw the fish. They go, oh, yeah, that's nice. And that was my fly fishing. And then going with the guides. At that time, there wasn't river trips like we know it today. Today They had wooden boats uh, called pinyans. And, and they were very popular in Canada, too, where, where people would. They were sort of a river boat, not particularly that stable, but they could go on lakes also. And so people didn't fish from them. They they used it as transportation because the snake was a big river and it's hard. And it's the same thing with British Columbia. You know, it's hard to walk from pool to pool. I mean, you end up eight miles and you fish ten pools. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's so. Uh, eventually, uh, the fifties came the military rafts. 
and and people started using them to fish. But still, there wasn't a lot of people fishing out of the rat. They were using again as transportation. So anyway, uh, I I did that up until I was uh, uh, sixteen, and my father remarried when I was about twelve, and I would spend the winters with him, and then I'd go back to Jackson. So my heart was always in Jackson. And even though I went to school in both Missouri, that's where I learned to talk, and then in uh, uh, Colorado. Eventually, my father got out of flying and bought a bought a liquor store, sporting goods store in Lander, Wyoming. I spent my last year of high school there. And again, uh, I just didn't want to leave Wyoming. So I, I stayed there, and, and he had a shop, and I, I, I would tie, I was time flies ever since I was eight years old. And, and and selling them. I was, when I was 11 years old, I was selling flies to Norm Thompson. It was a kind of a, a really neat fly fishing outfitter in, in Portland, Oregon. And, uh, and so so I, I kind of got in. Then Randall Kaufman, who was in uh, L.A., came into my dad's store and he saw me tying flies. He said, well, I tie flies. And I said, let's go fishing. I said, man, I've got to finish this order before I can go fishing. And well, my brother and I want to go into the wind rivers. So he said, I'll help you tie the flies. So he sat down and that began a wonderful relationship that, that still today will be going fishing in three weeks in Demopolis and, and of course, he published books. I published books, and we—he uh, had stores. We, we all, uh, and then we met during the the very first conclave. We met Dennis Black, who is probably the biggest hero hero in fly fishing that nobody knows. And and he, uh, his idea was to go to India and find quality fly tires and do flies. Because he saw the handwriting on the wall. The Dan Bailey's couldn't keep up with it. Randall and I both tried to teach women, you know, housewives and stuff to tie flies. And it sort of worked, but it didn't really handle the demand. And so Dennis kind of was the pioneer. But the British had already done that. The British had gone to Africa and, and they'd kind of set the pace. So he, he had... We all three tied flies from or for Orvis, and so we would compare our orders, and 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 we, uh, I started. Randall and I both started a store in '67 in Jackson, and Randall lasted two months. He got a hold of a Jackson Hole winner, and he was gone. And then he went and met up with Dennis. Then he went to Portland and started his shop. Dennis got in a little bit of a situation with a, a girlfriend. And uh, of a of the local uh, marijuana mafia, and he thought it was a good idea to go to India and find this fly operation. Now that's not many people know about that, and you know he's passed away, and Umquats just did their fiftieth anniversary. It's not in the catalog, but yeah. it's always fun to tell the real stories. So he went to India. He found this mythical fly tying operation, made a deal with them. Uh, Fortunately, the uh, uh, <laughs> the uh, mafia guy got wiped out by his competition, so he was safe to come home and start Umqua Feather Merchants, which was in 1972. He did it with his brother and became became the the pioneer of 
bringing quality imported flies into the United States. And, and they eventually had an operation where they sold flies in Australia and New Zealand. And, and, he, and then eventually he went to Thailand. And now they're in Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Uh, so that was kind of the situation of, of how I I grew up. I was involved with sports, but, you know, fishing was really going out with guides at a young age. They were my heroes, you know. And, and so I started out with the shop guiding and with rubber rafts got involved with Avon we started design rafts for fishing and I had a wonderful relationship with Avon designed several of their boats which was a good way when you didn't have any money design the boat and they'd give you one yeah. you know <laughs> what year approximately was this Jack well that was in the 60s okay. that was in like 68 69 70 71 right in there and then I met my wife which we've been married 52 years and uh, she said, this is not an occupation for a married person being a fishing guide. She says, you got to do something else. Well, we had a little fly shop that was open. And and uh, she was finishing up her nursing career. We went to Seattle and, and I worked for uh, for a, a, a Nordstrom's type store called Frederick and Nor- Nelson in Seattle. And and got to see what Nordstrom was doing. I learned how to do a store. And uh, so I, I went back to Jackson and decided we'd, we'd start a scenic business and a whitewater business. And we just decided whatever we needed to do. And there were two big sporting goods stores already in the town and a small fly shop. And the guy sold it uh, to me. Uh and and that kind of then we, we made a gamble and put a store on the town square of Jackson. And, and it just kind of accelerated from there. Four years later in 78, I took in partners uh, that financially the world, it was a, a really bad downturn where the interest went up to 24%. And you can imagine trying to do a retail business at 24%. But we found people that had money in Jackson it would loan it at 9%. We survived. The competition didn't. And uh, just it's a lot of luck. And, uh, I don't know how to, I guess that is, uh, I just, I was lucky. I mean, everything, uh, you know, I just always happened to be in the right place at the right time. And 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 in 68, Kirk Gowdy, who would mean nothing to most people anymore because it was so long ago, but he was uh, from Wyoming and an announcer, and he started the American Sportsman Program. Mm-hmm. And it was our first uh, exposure to fly fishing and hunting and fishing on national television. There were only three networks in the United States then, and you probably only had one in Canada at that time. And it, it was uh, unbelievable. Forty million people would watch the show. And it'd come on after the football games on a Sunday, the American sportsman. And, and I he, I, I always dreamed that when I was a young boy that I could be on the American sportsman show. I'd pretend I was on the show. And somehow I I, I always thought, of, well, I was going to be a sports broadcaster. And I interviewed with his television or his radio station, and he happened to be there. And I didn't get the job. But... A year later, I went to the very first Trout Unlimited Denver meeting when they were just forming Colorado Trout. 
Colorado was only in Michigan and Wisconsin then. Right. And this and Gowdy was on the board along with Ben Bing Crosby. They were this huge Hollywood presence or or, or uh, celebrity presence with Trout Unlimited. And there he was. And my I, I knew a guy from Jackson that hauled me over there and said, well, haven't I met you before? And I said, yeah. <laughs> he goes, no, you're, you're a guy. And I said, yeah, I don't have been guiding for you know five or six years. And said, I wanted to do American Sportsman to Jackson. And we did it. And it became the most popular show in American uh, sportsman history. Uh, it re-ran three times, uh, had the highest viewership. And it was with Phil Harris, a, a wonderful entertainer, who sang during the program. And it was the first time that ABC Sports ever used a helicopter to film uh, a uh, outdoor program. And it was it was just so it didn't okay. let it to with friendship with Kurt. He did the forward in 73. Uh, the, I decided to do a book to help people. And, you know, and so that it, it all rushed in and quite a, a, a deal, you know. So I, I don't know. I, I could just just start talking for the whole. No, thing. it's all right. I'm, so I'm, I'm asking questions. I'm letting like you I'm go. Doing show and not you. <laughs> I'm. I, I love just letting you go, especially a great storyteller. I don't. I don't get in the way. I always just wait. But I'm going to take you all the way back now to when you were a little boy. So your dad, what was he like? And I and I've got to tell you before you let me know. I had just watched this show on the airplane coming back from Montana, actually, with Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie. <laughs> and they're in old Hollywood. It would have been the 20s or so. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed so wild. And so now I've painted this image in my head of Hollywood. What was it like back then? And what was your father like? Well, my father and I, uh, I didn't have a lot of time with my father until I was 12. He was a World War II hero one of the first test pilots. He was in the very first Ar Army Air Corps before it was the Air Force. And he just knew everybody and he flew for the movie companies. But I was so young. I, you know, I was just three, four or five years old. And and, and he was, uh, he had been married, he eventually was married four times. He was the typical stereotype from that era. And, and he had Hollywood girlfriends before he married my mother. You know, he he worked from the movie companies. He, he was a he was just a man's man, and not necessarily a woman's man. Yeah, I had, yeah. A, well, I had a feeling <laughs> that, that that I didn't mean it that way, but no, I know, I know. The women loved him. Yeah, yeah, they loved him too much. Right. Yeah. So I had a my father figure really was my grandfather who loved fishing. He wasn't great at it. My father was a very good fisherman, but he was all trying to deal with my mother being in the hospital. He had went back, uh, and and I, I would be in the with my grandmother on my dad's side in the uh, in, in the Independence, Missouri, and and then I would go to to the other grandparents. And this went on until I was in the sixth grade. So then my father was an outdoorsman. He loved to hunt. His brother was a very successful car dealer. Uh, they both uh, were very close. And and I got to go on lots of hunting trips and lots of fishing trips. But the summers where I really learned. 
And and as a boy, they my grandfather just turned me loose. I was eight or nine years old. He just he'd go to a ranch and play cards with the ranch owner, and I had the free reign. And I would crawl on the banks and watch the cutthroats. Everybody wanted to fish the river because it was easy fishing. Just throw a big humpy out there, you catch fish. And they go, why is this kid going out and running up and down, trying to crawl and catch these fish that nobody can catch? And then I got made the acquaintance of Mrs. Carey, who was the wife of the third governor of Wyoming. And Wyoming became a state in like 1890. So, you know, a third governor just, and you know, my grandmother was born in, in 1890. She lived in three centuries. She died in 2105, you know, I mean, 2003. Wow. <laughs> so, I, I mean, it was around a lot of influences. It's just hard to really say it and just, to, you know, uh, there were just so many people that influenced me from my wife to my kids. I mean, it's just, and people ask me, what's the greatest thing you ever did? And I said, had a family where every kid was successful. That was the greatest thing. The rest of the stuff was immaterial. Absolutely. But I had so many out of the behind the scenes that nobody knew about. I didn't care to want people, you know, like I started a one fly. I took a back seat. I brought other people in. I, 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 I did as best I could to stay with it. And, and go in the direction I thought it would, but it's a huge event now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the very first freshwater fly fishing event. It was not well accepted at first. People didn't like competition. Can I can I take a break before you go there? Because, sure. I, and again, I am gonna I'm gonna kind of um, pick apart your timeline in pieces. But before I go okay, back sure. to you being a kid, the the one fly. Can you just for people who are listening who have never heard of it? Can you explain what it is? Well, it's an interesting start, and I had to tell this to my board, which, you know, in 38 years, the board has had a big change. There's only two of us that are still there from the original board. Uh, well, yeah, two of us. And uh, so it, it started with my friendship with Lee Wolf. In 68, when the very first conclave of the Federation of Fly Fishermen happened in Jackson Hole, and that's when Randall came with me, and that's when we met Dennis Black, who was there from California. He was tying at the, this very first conclave. And and so at, at that point, they needed guides. And they knew that when I was 14, 15, 16, I was rolling the river and taking people fishing. You know, nobody cared about insurance. You could drive a car at 14 in those days. You know, you, you were in British Columbia. You know what? hell I'm talking about and Australia would be the same place uh, so they for some odd reason I got Lee Wolf you know I mean I had watched his program when I was my father was shot down during the Normandy invasion I never went to a movie never went to any of my sports I played sports even in college my father never went to one game and but he never went to a movie with me. He, but he took me to the longest day, and which was the story, the original big epic movie about. Uh, and you need to watch it too; it's fabulous uh, about Normandy. And before it started, here was Lee Wolf standing in a stream in a. They used to have cartoons, and then they'd have what they call shorts. And he was doing this 
before he got involved with Kurt Gowdy and American Sportsman. Films on his own. Uh, and he caught a 30-pound Atlantic salmon on a six-foot fly rod. And he released it. And I'm just like, I, I got to do that. <laughs> I, I got to do those kind of things. That's when I knew I was stuck right then. And, you know, the my father wanted me to go to the Air Academy. He wanted me to do all this stuff. And, you know, the longest day didn't inspire me. But so lo and behold, I'm guiding. He and, and uh, uh, God, who was, who was, oh, the guy, the founder of Esquire magazine. And they were two buddies and they went at each other all in. It, it was a great trip. And he said, look, what are you going to do here? So well, I'm going to become a guide and everything. He says, you know what really would help you is you go to a sports show. You know, what? And I said, well, I know about sports shows because they had them in Denver where they, you know, people would get up and do casting. And you know, but these were where they had music and they were floor shows. And, and, and Jane, you know, and Joan Wolf used to participate in it. And they'd go out and you'd do crazy things, and it, and it would be a auditorium, not like we know today. Like more I mean, of a performance. Like a, it was like a circus for the outdoorsmen. Yeah, guys would do bird calls, you know, vaudeville. And and so I said, well, he said, I'm going to be in Los Angeles. Why don't you come out and, and bring a little booth? And and so we met. And then when I met Gowdy, we all got to kind of together and, and fishing. And so he had an, a story that he wanted to do. It was 1972, I believe, for Outdoor Life, if you only had one fly. And so he would, you know, all the particular people in that day and age, from Sweebert to Joe Brooks and all the guys that, that had the reputation at that time. And I, I got asked, which I felt really honored. And and Kirk got asked about what the fly and and he picked his fly. So it was the, you know, it took a, a year for it to get published. And and uh and uh, he, you know, Gowdy asked his favorite fly was always a butler metal. He did that was when he picked. And he asked me, you know, I just went to the one-shot antelope hunt, and that was a, a big event on the Indian Reservation in Landon, Wyoming. Still goes on today, and uh, my father got involved with that, so I knew about it uh, when he had the liquor store. And he, he, I mean, he knew Jimmy Doolittle. He knew all the uh, Chuck Yeager. All those people were friends of my father, and they were all involved with this one-shot antelope hunt, and. Gaddy said, well, why can't we have a one-fly contest like this? I said, I think it's a wonderful idea. He says, we're having it right now. He said, hire a guide. You and I are going at it. One, one fly. And he was, here this is the guy, the greatest announcer that ever lived, worked for all three networks. In one year, he did the Super Bowl, the World Series, the college. He did every sporting event there was to do back in the in the 60s and the 70s. And so everybody knew his voice. He was in movies with his voice. Uh, and, and 
And so here you go. We went down. You know, I'm like 24. You know, and we're going down the river, and Dennis makes a cast into the bank. Oh, he's a little short. Gowdy <laughs> comes through. Oh, he gets the fish. Now you go to to now Howard Cosell. What do you think of all this? And he could imitate anybody. He had the wonderful baritone that he could sing and could imitate, and he would. It was just like, and the people would go by and they hear his voice, like, what, no cameras, like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> and we did this all over. We did it in Montana and we did it. So in, in about 1977, probably, there's a, there a right, very well known writer who, who was from Florida and, knew, uh, and wrote for a Jackson paper by the name of Paul Brune. And another guy by uh, oh, Paul. Yeah. And and another guy by the name of Dan Abrams, who was a minister that was uh, the fly fishing minister, got very involved with uh, with uh, uh, Jimmy Carter when he came out and and kind of became the uh, and he, he did all the photography for my books and editing. And and he they said, look, let's put this thing in writing and try to figure out how we could do it. And and we tried it, and we only had three teams that were even interested. It wasn't enough, so it just kind of got tabled, and we all went off on our own deals. And, and Paul kept – he wouldn't give it up. He just kept bugging my partners and just said, this because he was from Florida, and they had fly fishing contests, and Gowdy was involved in fly fishing contests. Uh, and and eventually I got to know Ted Williams, the baseball player, through Gowdy, uh, who was one of the you know important people, and 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 uh, uh, along with Billy Pate and and uh, Lefty Cray and all those guys getting saltwater. But Gowdy was the one that put it tarpon fishing on television. And and he gave validity to a lot of the contest. So here we go. They said, okay, we went through the 80s, no fall business. After September, gone. Three or four boat trips a day, maximum. And they said, you know, we got to build up and let people know how good fall is. So we need this event. And so I asked one, I asked Brune and and uh, Joe Burke and a couple of the other people and Dan to come up with some rules. And they wrote the original rules. And I thought it was easy. You just get a bunch of your friends together and then you've kind of formed the thing. And, 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 you know, no board, no idea what we're doing, but we, we, we wouldn't learn one thing. We would pay the guides, no volunteers. What what were the rules though? They are only allowed to fish one fly. Well, the rules evolved over that. It, it started out with just a point for every fish, and, okay. and then you got points for the biggest fish. And now you measure six fish. You you can measure eight fish, and then you choose which six fish. It, it, it it's very it, it it has evolved like everything. But it started out in the first two hours. One of my best friends drowned in the river. Wow. Oh. And I had to rush to there, no cell phones, no nothing, to, and, and try to piece it together. My wife was the ER news on duty. We luckily had a helicopter. They found his body, but they couldn't revive him. 
He, he had, a boat had gotten loose. He was ran, running along the bank to try to get the boat, and the bank caved in. They got flipped over, and you know they never did an autopsy, but it was a broken neck more than likely. He was a California surfer, fabulous swimmer, you know, and he did it because originally we thought it would be a good thing for Jackson Hole Trout Unlimited. Yeah, we thought small, and so. Then you can't imagine that night when you're having a dinner. Mm-mm. But I had some wonderful people that had a lot more wisdom than I had. Said, look, this is what we need to do. And we were able to then put his uh, kids through college and, and uh, help the family. And all of a sudden it worked. And by 1990, we had Lee Wolf there, we had Gowdy, we had Chuck Yeager, we had movie people, we had all kinds of people in the in within five years. And then I had a problem is I had all these friends fighting among each other. Don't bring your friends on a board. You know, you 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 go find tough guys and and so we formed a new board and and we had some wonderful boards board people and and it grew from there as a fundraiser and we've raised over 20 million dollars actually we're more up like about 30 now the annual banquet will take in about 500 to six hundred thousand dollars and but we we join other projects help them get started so that's a big part of our we'll give away half a million dollars a year and and um and, and and it's evolved. I mean, wonderful flies came out of it. People would design flies, the double bunny, the, the Chernobyl ant, you know, all these, uh, uh, Amy's ant, I mean, uh, convertibles, all these crazy flies in 38 years, the winning fly, all got notoriety. And so, it, but probably the biggest benefit was uh, fish census, same time every year. Same rivers fish the same way, and you're measuring the fish, you're counting the fish, and you turn it over to the game and fish. How many people participate on average every year? Uh, well, it's, it's the same every year. There's 40 teams, 44 man teams, so it's 160 people. They're allowed to have uh, they're allowed to have guests. So one guy fish one day. So it'll average uh, with the wives and everything. It's about uh, 350 to 400. Then you have the guides. It takes almost 100 guides. And, you know, that's that presents its own challenges. We use two rivers, uh, South Fork of the Snake in Idaho and the uh, Snake in Jackson. Where we have permits with the National Park, with the Forest Service, with the BLM. I mean, you know. Your, the bureaucrats take over, but we also help them with money to do boat ramps and re, re, uh, all our money goes to uh, 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 to uh, stream rehabilitation. Now we support two biologists every year in school for undergraduate uh, and graduate work. So we and then we do three kids fly fishing days and expose kids at Idaho Falls and Star Valley, Swan Valley and Jackson. And, and they'll, the average participation is about four or 500 kids. Wow. 
and and so that's another thing that we do. And then a fabulous booklets uh, that tells our story. And I mean, you can find out, see just Jackson Hole One Fly and you can get the website. We have these wonderful volunteer people that that are well-to-do and you know retired in Jackson. They're still young. You know, we have the owner of Steel uh, uh, Sportswear, which is a big sportswear company. He's on the board. And, and we have... Uh, we have just wonderful people. They're, they're really good in their field on the board. It, it is really, and it spawned about 300 other contracts throughout the country. Yeah. And one of them is for money. You can't, you can win money and on Calcutta. You know, you can bet on yourself. And people can bet on you. And, and it, uh, it, it's, that's the only way you win any money. And it's minor money. I might win three or $4,000. You know, big deal. But the one fly gets a big chunk of that too. So, so what's happened is now that contest has idea has been a great fundraiser for Trout Unlimited Mag deals. There's they tried it in Canada. I, it, a lot of them didn't. They didn't really they did. It. There was one in New Zealand. They didn't really know how to make it work. A lot of them. It's very intricate. They tried to get guides. Without paying them, you know, that we pay them a dollar. We pay them a year in advance, and they—they've, you know, it, it expanded. What it did was help build a fall fishing thing for guides. Why was fall fishing not popular? Nobody around. You know, you got kids, you got grandkids, you got, and it's a fall. Yeah, it's always been popular with well-to-do people. But it it never got, and you know it all came on the tail of you know of uh, of the renaissance of fly fishing, which you know when when you started getting spinnaker rods that were eighty dollars instead of cane rods at three hundred dollars, it it became, and then you started getting fly fishing magazines that appealed to the average guy instead of well-to-do people. They never read magazines. They just went and hired a guy, and, you know. And in in those days, you didn't have New Zealand, you didn't have all the other places pulling on them. So the West and BC, I mean, my God, they flocked in there, and, and you know, to go steelhead fishing. Yeah, but it wasn't the average guy, right? It and, was very uppity. Did you do you remember watching and witnessing the shift? Where oh yeah, I was, was part of it. We, yeah, can we talk about was, that? My book sold, uh, between the three books, we sold almost 600,000 books. Charles, because for people who are listening right now, they don't realize Charles's best friend, Andrew Bros, who passed away before I met Charles. Uh, yeah. Andrew and you were good friends. Yes, I met Andrew. Uh, gosh, I'm trying to think how I, I met him doing. I, I, I got invited in 76 by... Uh, uh, and oh god, the the, the uh, why am I not the big department store in in uh, in Australia? And yeah. so he said, "Well, bring Jack out with this new book in '76, and and we'll highlight our opening of our fly shop." This is before the complete angle for right. uh, Jimmy Allen, 
That's right. So, Who And the shop uh, is still around. And so, just so you know, before you continue on this, because I'm fascinated, all those books that Andrew has of yours or had of yours, he uh, willed them in his will. They were left to Charles. So we have got all of your books in our library. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, I have so many Andrew Bros stories. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, and yeah, he got to know my wife very well. We went on a lot of trips. We, we went to Argentina and Chile and New Zealand. But, you know, it's it's a very intricate. And he was a very much a part of Australia getting getting. Uh, so anyway, I went out in 76. Pan Am paid for my flight, brought my wife out. And we uh, uh, this Bruce Whalen, who, who was a pilot for uh, Pan Am was helping in the store build a fly fishing department. And so he brought the books over. When he flew, he just added, he'd get 25 books from me, he'd fly into Jackson. He's still alive and still, he he uh, is the personal pilot for the guy that owns Anset, that, that owned Anset and sold it to uh, uh, the Brett guy. And, and uh, so he... He got us. <laughs> he got us there, and I went fishing with him on a swampy plane, and just kind of started falling in love with Australia. And they they they, they paid really well to come out and 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 somehow during that time, I met Jimmy Allen, and and uh, uh, we became friends. And then Jimmy hired me to come out and help him build a fly fishing shop in his complete Anglo store on Little Collins Street. And see, I can remember certain things. <laughs> I think your memory is amazing. And that shop is still there, I believe. Yeah, well, it, 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 it terrible with names. That's my, my, I remember situations and stories. I don't remember names as well. But uh, what, what happened was uh, Jimmy was very involved with uh, ocean fishing and and he and he said, "You got to, uh, uh, you got to kiss this. We need somebody like you coming over here. We can't afford Lefty Cray and some of these other guys. But you're young, and you know we need you. So I mean, I started going there every every winter, and and doing stuff with Jimmy. And and my greatest story about Jimmy, and and about and this would have been in the early '80s." Uh, I came out uh, to help him f put the final touches on his uh, fly fishing shop that he put on the upstairs. And it was at lunchtime. And, you know, I don't know if it's the same, but it used to be everything shut down for two hours. And everyone went to lunch. Oh, no, I don't think yeah, so. No, that, back in those days. And so the shop, he had on just a minimal steel. He was on the phone and I was up in the shop. And this guy walks in with a beautiful tailored suit, which you never saw around Australia. You know, you'd see a little bit of it, but, you know, walking into a fishing store, carrying a rod. He walks up. He said, hey, is uh, Jimmy around? And I go, uh, he's back on the phone. He said, oh, he's always on the phone. Hey, you sound American. And I said, yeah, I'm American. He says, look. You know, I'm I'm in a bit of a hurry, but uh, maybe you can. Do you know anything about fly fishing? And I said, Well, I own a fly fishing shop in in in, in Wyoming in the U.S. He said, Oh, he said, Well, I I got this rod and I need a line for it, and I'm going fishing this weekend. 
And and uh, I thought maybe Jimmy could help me. And, and he said, that there's no marking on the rod about what line size it was. I said, I looked at the rod, it was Thomas and Thomas Kane rod. And I said, I, I know that rod. And I said, I let's put it together. It's a five weight. And he goes, oh. And, and said, uh, and so it takes a five weight. And, and, and I said, well, you know, uh, I, I've seen this rod before. He says, oh, yeah. And he says, it, it was a gift from your American president. And I go, yeah, I, I, it is. <laughs> I go, how in the world did you get that? He goes, you know, I don't have a clue, mate. Maybe it's because I'm the Australian prime minister. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Oh my goodness. It was, it, 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 uh, again, the name. And, and I, I don't know either. I'm totally Frazier. up to date with Malcolm Frazier. Uh, okay. And he was a big fly fisherman. We actually went fishing together. And that was the most embarrassing moment of my life, you know. <laughs> it didn't only five. When I opened it, it said, a pre, uh, it, it said, a gift from the president of the United States, Ronald Reagan, you know. <laughs> but see, I knew Thomas and Tom, the, uh, the Thomas and Topham people, the guy who owned it. And he had showed me that rod at a sport, at a sport show that he was making five of them for Reagan. Oh wow! So I, I mean, it was that, and it, it, it so it, it, it kind of happened there. But originally, I I had a chance when I was first there in '76 to meet Noel Jetson in Tasmania, I'd go fishing with him, and he was kind of the Dan Bailey of of uh, Australia, and and we had fabulous relationships, and and it worked into where I had a contract with the uh, Australian uh, Tourist Commission. And I went to, in 1982, went to, uh, which was a very interesting adventure to uh, Darwin. This oh, is long wow. before Crocodile Dundee, when <laughs> yeah. there was dirt roads out there. And, 
and they had they had two fly fishers that neither one had ever seen another fly fisher. Mm-hmm. I believe that. And we, I went up there, and they hired my friend Dan Abrams, who had done the photography and the book to film it, and it was to go see what the fly fishing opportunities would be for all the fish that were up in. And the only time I could do it was during the wet, which, you know, made it a little tougher. But we went up there and just had an incredible adventure. Uh, still got some of the footage on eight millimeter with no sound. Cool. Was it for Bear Monday? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, Bear Monday and, and whenever we could catch. How many I mean, crocodiles did you see? For uh, people listening, Dar- guy, Darwin's way north and it's very dangerous, even now. Yeah. Well, I know we were we had guards. We camped out. And, Oh yeah, you know, I had dreams of the crocodiles coming and getting us. Oh yeah, it was uh, it was it was an adventure. So I wrote a report up for ATC and said this is something that should be. And what you need to do is to bring Lefty Cray. At that time, was the best known in fly fishing. Bring him out on a familiarization trip and and and, and then get your educated because I I'm not a saltwater. Fly fishing, I've done it, but I mean, not, I wasn't qualified other than, and, and, and I'd already started helping Tasmania. But during that time, I got hired by New Zealand to put together a 20 year program, 25 year, to develop the lodge system. When I started, there was one lodge, Hookah Lodge. And so I worked with Simon Dickey and uh, Tony Entwistle, a bunch of the New Zealand guides. And we we brought out 50 fly fishing shops from around the world so they could see what New Zealand was about. This was in the uh, 80s because it, they were having a very bad return rate. And they they were selling it to Texans who couldn't fish. You know, they'd gone to Alaska and they figured it to be Alaska. And so we had to develop it. And I brought them television shows and it was a wonderful relationship. Went all the way till two thousand, and you know it's one of those deals where you work yourself out of a job. Right. Once, you know, and and uh, then I went back and did Tasmania for five years, and then I did Argentina and I did Chile, and I actually did some work for British Columbia on the on the eastern the eastern part where they were trying to figure out how they were going to tax the hell out of the Albertans and keep them out. And, and you know, it's a little I got involved with all these things, guides associations, and you know, you know, I, I just started at a young age, so I make all the mistakes. But you know, it, it was wonderful. And and then somehow I met Andrew when he when he did the shop in Sydney. And that was a great experience because he came over into the one fly, brought several years, brought teams. And uh, and 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 it really it, he he was wonderful at promoting Australia, and and we did a lot of trips together, and uh, and then I had the uh, the two boys, uh, Tom and uh, you know the the guys from uh, uh, a river somewhere, which are you know your popular, and that, they were just young and they were in college and, and learning to fly fish, and I. Asked what they wanted to do. He said, we want to be the best known comedians in Australia. I you interviewed know. one of those guys. Uh, goodness, what is it? I'm having... So I'm, Tasmania gave me a trip 
on our, it was our 25th wedding anniversary to Tasmania. No fishing, just two weeks. We, they took care of it, my wife and I. And so we topped that off with the trip to go down the Yangtze River. Where we flew in, Air New Zealand flew us to, I had a deal with them and then a deal with Qantas. And they flew us to, to uh, uh, Qantas flew us to China, okay. to Hong Kong. And uh, on the flight, going out of Sydney, here comes this program on, which is a river somewhere. Rob Sitch, that's and my wife flew to Melbourne. But, Rob Sitch. Yeah, Rob, Rob and Tom. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, and yeah, it, it goes on. He tells the story of Jimmy Allen at the World Fly Fishing Championships in 2000 with Malcolm Fraser there, and they tell that story with a thousand people out there, and I'm in the back hiding about the rod. How'd you get this rod? Yeah, you know, uh, so anyway, I, I see him on there. And my wife said, now that's a fly fishing program. She says, you do okay, but these guys are the best. And so I turn it on and I go and he, and, and so he's making fun of the Royal Humpy, which is my fly, <laughs> and, and, and talking about the materials. And this is like directly to me making fun of me, you know, in, in, a, in the second person, you know, this is not according by the book which was my book, which Royal Humpy's on there. German Shepherd Tale. If you get the very first one, which is the Howla one, the very first one they did, you review it and you can see how they how they make a little fun of, of, my, of my fly. So I go, I know those guys. And I said, who are they? Well, the best known comedians in the country. Yeah. I go, so when I got back to go to Tasmania, I called those guys up on the phone and said, come on, you clowns, what do you think you're doing? They go, man, we want to we do a program in America with you. And so they came to America and we did a program. And, and then we got reacquainted at the, at the World Fly Fishing again with, with Rob. Rob kind of stayed more in it than, than Tom did. Yeah. But I think, you know, I, I don't know. You know what? They still had their frontline program. Yeah. So Rob, I flew down to Melbourne a few years ago to interview Rob, and he now has Working Dog Productions. Yeah, yeah. I, I worked for. I did work for Working Dog. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is so cool. Yeah. It's such a small world. You know, I, yeah. It, it, it was crazy. I've got wonderful pictures of it. Um. Can you tell me about the Humpy? How did that all come to be? Well, the Royal Humpy was just. It was my fly. The Humpy came about. It was a real interesting uh, a take on the humpy. It was originally Montana called it a goofus bug. Uh, a guy in Jackson gave it the name, uh, uh, kind of a, a promoter, Boots Allen. He was a he was a uh, lake fishing guy, just one of those guys who just kind of on the edge of doing things. He would use minnows where places he shouldn't use minnows. And, and his sons were guides. And now his grandson is one of the premier guides in Jackson. And he just gave it the name Humpy and he called it the home of the Humpy. He had this fort. He built this thing like a fort. I worked for him when I was 15. And his wife would crank out these, these god-awful looking Humpies, but they worked. 
And the original guy was a guy from San Francisco, Jack Horner, and he had the Horner's deer fly. And it hits kind of the, and I say that in the book, it was kind of the one that started it all. And then Bailey did the goofus. And and I took, and, and you know, the guy was older and he, he didn't care. Fishing was easy. And I looked at it and I said, what's wrong with this fly? I always looked at flies and said, what's wrong with it? And the tails would come apart. And they, usually the scruffier they got, the better they fish. But then they started floating wrong and the fish would refuse them. And I, I thought, well, Dan Bailey had experimented putting moose tails on Adams, regular standard dry flies. That, you know, he was from the east. And he, he's the one that took Lee Wolf's patterns and popularized them. Lee had never really even envisioned the Royal Wolf. His first was a uh, wolf pattern was a, uh, uh, I'm going to say the gray or the white wolf, what he used up in Canada, uh, what they call coffin flies, which are hexagenous, big size six mayflies. And that's where the wolf patterns came about. And they skated them for uh Atlantic salmon too, and, and brook trout. You know, Fisher, uh, and, and so he kind of put moose and elk on tails, which the traditional eastern patterns were done with hackle. You know, and and you'd have to look at because we didn't have the hackle then. We had hackle it came from India. It was horrible. And there were a few people that were really into it, growing hackle back in Pennsylvania, that certain colors and all that. But, uh, you know, that, again, changed fly time when they were able to get beautiful saddles. And, but but so I thought, well, why can't we just put a moose tail on this? You know, and moose mane would never disintegrate. And then we started looking at getting better grade of, of deer we started getting people that would uh look for good hair i mean and and, and that kind of what started my books because we, we we did a lot of talking about hair and how to deal with hair uh and so i of all things i was with charlie reidenhauer and joe humphreys you know who joe humphreys is yep and he was they were both olympic teammates in wrestling and uh, in the mid fifties, uh, uh, they had come out to Jackson, and and uh, uh, it somehow because I was hanging around the shops, I got to go fishing with Joe and Charlie, and Charlie ended up staying in Jackson and becoming a guide for me. And we were out there, and 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 Charlie and Joe couldn't see humpies; they had trouble seeing them. And they would miss fish. And, and, and Joe, even in his late 80s, re, he remembers it far better than I did. And I remember, you know, like, good Lord. God, I mean, I have no hope if you can remember this. <laughs> yeah, you were 14. And and so when they, I remembered that. And so I decided to put the white wings on, which, which meant they would be visible. And Lee Wolf just, he that was his favorite fly that was a royal humpy for for a number of years because of the white wing and the floatability of it. And you know, one of the great things that I got to do 
uh, with Lee was Design a Fly, which is one of Umpqua's number one sellers. He had tried to do parachutes, and he figured the best way to do parachutes was do it with plastics and take the hair and stick it in the plastic. Permanent, then you wrap the hackle around the plastic, indestructible. And he did some stoneflies that were really pretty, pretty ahead of his time. And and uh, he said, you know, the biggest problem we have is that the wolf patterns were good in fast water, but they're not good in slow water. They ride too high uh, on the water. And he said, I just think if we could get a double wing, which would be the wolf wing on a parachute, we'd have a winning pattern. It would then imitate more mayflies on slower water. They would then become spring creek type flies. I looked for a thread. The problem was you could tie them in 10s and 12s, but you couldn't go any further. And, you know, you, you know, you got to have 16s, you got to have 18s. And I worked with uh, Good Broad came out with finally a thread that was small because you had to do a lot of wrapping. And Umqua took that pattern and just got it to perfection. They tie it better than I could ever tie it. Would you buy off the counter? And became one of the number one flies. And I never promoted the fly. I could sell a lot more of them. It, it just never got promoted. It just came counter to that quiet secret in the box. And, you know, uh, and then we did the the Amy's Ann. I only have two flies in the Umpqua program. Started out with 16, now I have two. And my and every year my checks keep going up. It's not how many flies you have, it's how many you sell. That's right. And yep. and, and it, it has just become the number one fly. So if you're going to fish trichos, which you can't see, there's nobody on earth can see a trico. You know, you can put, I mean, you can put a, a, a wing on it. But when it's on an 18 or 20, you're not going to see that. I don't care what color you put on it. So we use the 18 Parawolf, which floats like a cork. You can see it from 100 yards. And it's 18 will get you by because it'll be booming always. So you go in to the trichopods with this fly that doesn't bother them because they're used to seeing. And nine, and 50% of the time, they take the parawolf instead of the trico. But it, it helps you because the more you fish, the more you understand what the distance is. And you get a sense, just like a Vladian European nymphing. He didn't even wait for the feel on the line. He just knew there was a fish there, and he'd just go, and it'd be there. And that's the same way. We see the rise, and you see the right rise. Lift your rod, you, you got them. And we learned a lot of that double fly thing from the Kiwis. That's the best thing I ever did was going there and learning. They did it because Americans were terrible casters. Uh, not that they weren't good casters. They were just, they were never trained for short, accurate casts. They were trained for distance. And you get these guys that couldn't, didn't realize that a 30-foot cast had to be within an inch or two of that fish's mouth. And it's amazing because we actually did a contest 
that Steve Rajeff never won, where it was called Casting for Dollars. We put it out 30 feet. And actually, it was uh, uh, Brian. Uh, there I go again. O'Keefe? Brian O'Keefe is what it thought it up. Go buy a beer, dump the beer out. What are you drinking? Then you set it down there, put water in it. And when the show is boring, you go out there and see if you can put it in the cup. And it costs you a dollar for each cast. Winner take all. Oh, this is fun. I'm going to do this with my buddies. It, it's it's unbelievable. You can't believe how many people can't put it in there. Ray <laughs> Jeff, we got it up to $400 during the best. I used to... to I used to uh, uh, be the host of the Best of the West casting contest at the ISC shows. And so I, Ray Jeff would come and win it. And another guy, you know, it, it was always these fabulous contests. And, and so I started adding that to the contest. And, and so you'd be this big, long line of people putting it out. And Ray Jeff was in there. And some it was going on and on. We're ready for the finals. It was the Salt Lake, the finals. And he said, somebody's got to win this. And this guy's walking by. He had a, a steelhead lodge in Washington. And his wife said, hey, you need to get in this. And she said, well, look at all the people. And Ray Jeff was standing there and said, look, you can go in front of me. And the guy gets in there, goes right up there, first cast puts it in. Okay. <laughs> Almost four hundred dollars. It's an easy four hundred bucks. Yeah. Got us four hundred dollars. <laughs> that is hilarious. Ray Jeff looked at me. So I shouldn't have told him he should have gone behind me. Yeah. <laughs> no wonder Ray Jeff doesn't win. But I mean it was so that was the problem with we deal, dealt with New Zealand is trying to educate it. It was not long cast, short, accurate cast. We designed fly lines, which now everybody makes, with uh, taking the Lee Wolf uh, triangle taper and shorten it. You know, and you don't need any more than. And Andrew sold a ton of. Them. We met for Cortland, and and Cortland was really big in Australia. But Tony Edwilson and I designed it. We were ran out of fishing. We had nothing better to do, so we designed it on the sand of a river in New Zealand. Then it was on a cocktail napkin and it watching the Super Bowl. And then we gave it to it became the uh taper. Uh Cortland had it and then everybody copied it. They never they never patented it. Oh no. And, but it was it, so you, you know, you first had four feet of four feet of level line, depending five feet for six weight, all the way down. And then you started your taper. And at 27 feet, you're into running line. One cast. Easy turnover. False cast over fish. Yeah. Do you, I, I've always wondered how New Zealand became popular, but now I know. So they basically fixed it with exposure with those 50 shops. Did it just set off like wildfire from there? Yeah, it did. Uh, uh, first of all, airfare started going down. Okay. They started tourism in New Zealand. And I think what the main thing is the challenge. We were getting better fishermen. We are getting people that were kind of bored with what was going on. And they, they thought they were big stuff. And we said, you think you're big stuff? Let's find out how big stuff you are. Let's take you to New Zealand and get humbled. I can tell you, Mike Lawson and I, our first trips, we were humbled. It was oh, a humbling experience. Same. 
For the first few years, Jack, I really, because Charles is a very good angler and he would look at me and say, I thought you were a pro. I was really embarrassed my first few years in New Zealand. It's ta- it's made me a way better. Still angler. married? That sounds like something my <laughs> wife would say to me. Uh, he's a, he's a very I'm sexy sure pastor. He's me. Than I, but you know, it, 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 I learned because I was able to get a Hollywood connection. I end up meeting a wonderful lawyer who did so much for fly fishing. A guy by the name of Skip Brittenham, and he had the money to go anywhere in the world. He was he had taken on Spielberg as as a client, and his firm just and Harrison Ford and I mean just went crazy. And he was the guy, and he fell in love with fly fishing. And we went everywhere, and he met Andrew, and Andrew loved him, and he really liked Andrew, and he went on a lot of trips with Skip, and and uh, so we uh, uh, we w- we would go over there and watch how these guys would get better each year, and how they and. You know, I didn't need a guide. And so I'd go on the helicopter. They'd drop me on a river, and the government thought, it's great. We don't know. Tell us what, what you think of this river. So I was not only getting a check from them. <laughs> Skip says, you're talking to my wife. said, you can't do this unless you get the same amount of money which you make in America doing speaking. So and that was fair enough. Skip said, fine, I'll pay you. You can speak to me. And and I got him with the best guides. and and he just got better and better. And then he got involved with world fly fishing. Uh, we both, we all went uh, in 88 to Tasmania for the first time America entered the world fly fishing championships. And we got humbled. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then I kind of, then there was no set way of getting on a team. Everybody else had contests. We just handed them your platinum American express card and, you could fish you were in because it cost so much money. So we went through the rich people and Skip was with them. And then we decided, uh, you know, we, we were just getting our ass kicked, you know, just. And so uh, one of my partners said to me, he said, you know, we got everything running well and you're going around this thing. I think it'd be wonderful if you'd take over as a, the manager coach of the U.S. fly fishing team. This was in 2003. And I had done the coaching in 2000 when it was in Australia, which was, I I, I just learned that what they call, uh, Andrew called it the uh, Australian one fish. <laughs> I think it was 40 fish caught in the whole contest. It was, oh. a, it was, it was a drought season. It was horrible. And I thought, man, that, I said, are you sure? And anyway, I did it from 2003 through 2008. And at that time we put in, we we learned from the rest of the world about European nymphing. And that original team won last year, won the uh, Masters, the senior champions, world champions, that same team that had gone and and, and we got sixth place in our very first contest that we did, went with the team. And we got then seventh place, and then we got fourteenth place, and that's when I decided we had to do something differently. And we did regional contests, just like they do in Australia. And the French always said the same: just make it an open contest. The same guys will win. 
he says, and the other guys will learn how to beat them and they will, you know, and it's worked, you know, and, and I'm, I'm happy because we have George Daniels, we have Jeff Courier, we have a wonderful group of uh, 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 all the guys became ambassadors for fly fishing. Mm-hmm. And, and I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish was bringing some more young people and what better is to represent your country and learn how to be a gentleman when you're getting beat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have a question for you on that, actually. Well, two, I've got two questions that have been, I've actually got three questions that have been nagging at me over the last hour. And I hope, I wonder if I can throw them. Well, the first one is, you know, your, your dad, you were able to go one of two ways. You could have chosen to aspire to be like your dad, or you could have chosen to be like a lot of the guides and who mentored you and your grandfather. Why did you choose to go the route that you did as far as being the man that you are today? Well, I, I, I was a reasonably good baseball player so I could get a college scholarship. And, and uh, my father flew for a major league baseball team. So he did it for about five years. And so I got some of the best training you could ever get. And, and so I, you know, I really hadn't had in mind what I really wanted to do. I figured I baseball would pay the way, but see, you got to realize what year it was. I, I was a senior and, and young, I was born in September 30th. So I was already uh, the youngest person in our class because in America, you started on October 1st. So I was the youngest person in the class. And so I went to college. I was 16, you know, for, for a month. Then I was 17. <laughs> but so I, I, the war was gone. Vietnam was thing. They were sending your grades in to the, to the draft boards. You didn't have that in Canada. So it's hard for somebody to understand. And I wanted to finish school. And I had this idea that maybe I ought to join reserves. We had ROTC, which if you stayed in college, you would have to go in after college. So I did did that, but then they they were cutting ROTC programs and they moved it from the college I was going to, what meant I would have to move. And, you know, you couldn't do that with the scholarship. So I just joined the reserves, figuring, oh, well, I can get through college. Well, I didn't last six months until they called the reserves up. So I was now displaced from college and sent to Fort Ord, which was not a bad place to get sent, and uh, ended up doing uh, about a year and a half active duty and then ended up getting back into a reserve unit that had nothing to do with Vietnam. So, and I played baseball when I was in college or in the Army because I was good at it. And I, I did portraits and painting. So they didn't think I was going to be a very good soldier. So I did murals for the, in the, in, in the uh, brand new barracks and got all kinds of wonderful treatment for doing that. Then went back out and all of a sudden I'm stuck with having to be in a reserve unit, which, and then, Randall and I met up and then we went to this conclave and this guy said, if you can start a shop here and if you can make it for three or four years, I'll sell you this shop, which he had all the 
right brands and everything. And it was whether I go back to college. I definitely didn't want to fly airplanes. And and it just seemed like wonderful to tie flies. And Randall and Dennis had a big influence. We all of us just none of us finished school. <laughs> we we all had college, but Dennis was a grandfather when he was 32. He got he finished college when he was 15. He was brilliant. You know, I mean, uh, <laughs> it was just crazy. I don't know. It just sometimes you don't. And I, of course, all my kids are either medical doctors or PhDs. They, well, they, I meant I had meant more about you, the man, and why you didn't end up being, you know, maybe a womanizer or going down a certain ethical path but your the career answer as far as your career goes is just as interesting well my sister and i both went through the thing my sister stayed with my father and she, more than i did and he did a good job with her right and uh, i was always a rebel i probably still was i you know one fly was a big step. I always did things that were kind of on the edge. The book, nobody thought that, you know, you always have to take chances, you know, you got to extend yourself. But as Ted Williams told me, he said, when that pitcher makes a mistake, the same kind of mistakes that you do. He says, when he makes a mistake, you make him pay for it. And, and he said, Think of a sport where you fail six out of ten times and you're the greatest hitter that ever lived. And if you fail uh, seven out of ten times, you get to play in the major leagues. If you fail eight out of ten times, you don't play. That's batting. It's where the heart. He always said the three hardest things to do is swing a golf club, cast a fly rod, and hit a baseball. That's what Williams said. And he was considered the greatest hitter of all time. And uh, so I, I I think that you recognizing uh, an opportunity, you, you have to sometimes forget everything, make bad decisions sometimes, and, and grasp that time. Well, that's my third you question. Guide, you've, you've met fabulous people that advised you. Absolutely. My 19-year-old grandson who's going through the same process that I did, which I have grandma, everybody. Saying, look, and he understands he's got to get a college degree, but he's going through the same thing. He's got all my genes, unfortunately. The other kids got their mother's genes and uh, their grandmother's genes. And but it, it, uh, I, I don't know. I wouldn't change a thing. There was a lot of heartbreak. There's a lot of, of wonderful things. Uh, you know, I look back on all the things I ever wanted to do in the world, I got to do. And, and and a lot of times it was expensive. My family, you know, and and everybody kind of stuck with it. My wife was stuck with it for fifty two years. I, I think uh, you know I I never know when my clothes are going to be on the even at this age on the uh, on the lawn. <laughs> she got mad at me. She always threw the clothes out of the lawn. Yeah, <laughs> um, we. <laughs> You know, I think, uh, look at, I mean, the governor called me about the Kirk Gowdy thing. He says, look, you want to be a guide for a few years. Do you think you can handle this? You know, I just like, 
but see, I was around those kind of people with my dad. They didn't, a, a governor didn't intimidate me. We lived across the street from Harry Truman when I was a kid. You know, my uncle was a was a congressman. I was around these people, yeah. and and so I learned that. You know, and so I, that's why I've been able to have wonderful relationships with movie people, because, you know, I was raised around those kind of people and they have all the same problems and heartbreaks. And, you know, uh, I, you know, I've got to fish. Was, I got to really know Harrison Ford. I gave him his first flying lesson because I could fly. We were on a fishing trip. He says, what are you doing up there? And I said, well, we couldn't get an extra pilot. So I'm flying as the second pilot. So, you know, well, if you can do it, I can do it. And, you know, he knew my dad. And he knew that I had the background. So so we got him up there and I gave him his first lessons. He still hasn't ever forgiven me for that because he's gone crazy. But um, what? just something that's also been in my mind is Randall Kaufman in L.A. Why L.A.? That really surprised me. I think in California, the, uh, but. Well, he was in the Rialto. That's where his mother, his father died early. Oh, okay. And he would go up to the Sierras and 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 fish in Bishop, and and he just wanted out of there. And I was the route to get out of there. Right. And and so he wanted to. We went to Pinedale. We couldn't decide where we wanted to go. And he, you know, and I was toying with because I could have gone back and you know I just said, look, I got to be in this area to go to to the meetings. I can't. I can't go around the world. I can't. I'm, I was like having a chain around you. You know, you, you had the, there were monthly meetings and, you, you know, and so Randall and I just, you know, we ended up doing the same thing. And when I did my book, he called back and said, look, can I do the book about nymphs the same way you did it? And I and he did it and he did it with the publisher and a motto public and which were, were cheap books you know that and he flooded the market during the the the, the river runs through it boom and and um, uh, that was a that was a real interesting uh, uh, time and 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 I couldn't find I still have the leather uh, when I did the book and we sent it to Winchester Press which did the digest books which were really popular back then and they sent me a letter back said we don't want to do your book because it's too regional. Oh, okay. The Western Flight Time Manual. And so I, t- I kept that letter, still had that letter. Your book is so one of the most banker, popular trout books of all time. Yeah, well, I, my banker said, well, why don't we, I'll finance you. He's a fly fishing. His son worked for me. And uh, his daughter is the CEO of UPS. So you, he, it was a pretty smart family. and. Uh, uh, he he said, I'll back you. And in the book, it says to my, my fly fishing banker. And uh, so we self-published it. Randall just, he says, man, I said, get rid of that. You publish your books yourself. And so he and I kind of became outcasts. You know, none of them. First of all, I hate writing. I like the spoken word. I like doing TV shows and things like you and I are talking about. I don't like writing. I did it because I needed to, and I had great editors just like Hemingway. Hemingway, I'm very good friends with Jack Hemingway, and he talked about, he said, the best thing my 
father did was get good wives to edit his books. There's a woman behind every man. Damn straight. Every man. Winston Churchill could have never got away with the things he did. It wasn't for a great wife, nor myself or everybody else. So I think that's important. And the same with Joan Wolfe. Lee became more settled. And uh, uh, I have to think of this because you'll love this. Because you, you've been around the men when you're guiding. So Lee and I are sitting there. And I'm, he wants to go to the one fly and he wants to write an article about the one fly, about a contest. And so I'm, I'm visiting him up at his place in New York on, uh, on the, uh, on the uh, Beaverkill River. And it's a beautiful place. He's got a landing strip, his planes there, and he's next to the Rockefellers as a, the Beaverkill end. And Mike Rockefeller did not want to fall in the paths of other Rockefellers. He just wanted to have his end. He didn't want to keep the park stuff going. And so they they had that wonderful relationship. And so we're sitting there and he sees the plane. He says, you know, I haven't flown in three or four years. And I said, I know you fly. And I said, let's go visit my lodges. I'm going to get qualified. And, and uh, it, it just seemed, what an adventure. I just couldn't wait to do it and so Joan brought out wonderful strawberries with with brown sugar and and uh, uh, sour cream and wine and all this wonderful spread and he says you know four greatest things in the world start with that food flying fishing and you can use your imagination <laughs> actually he said the word but Joan goes please yeah, she just kind of keeps me tamed down a little bit. <laughs> I never forgot that. And yeah, unfortunately, we never did get that trip together. But but I got to spend two weeks with him in the last two weeks of his life and got to film him, talk about his life and everything. And you know, he and Gowdy both talking about it. So, I, you know, the, the experiences just go on and on, sitting there with people all around the world. And, and that's what it's all about. It's not the necessarily fishing. You know, both my daughters wrote that wonderful line that it's not the fish that you're fishing for. You know, it's, it's Memories. Walton's great line about it. It's uh, and and I just was on the phone today. You'd love this. This is a doctor, very good fly fisherman. She has to give a 10 minute talk to a doctor's convention in Jackson about the history of fly fishing. Oh, cool. Ten minutes. <laughs> I says, well, you tell them uh, you're going to give a history of medicine in 10 minutes. You know, and I said, you know, ever wonder why doctors and lawyers love it? It's because there's, they can do all the things they do in medicine, which is uh, detective work. My daughter's of internal medicine. I'm my best friend in internal medicine. They're the detectives trying to figure out what's going on. But the patient doesn't die. And, and lawyers uh, deal with degrees of truth. There is no one way or another. And in fishing, there is no degrees of truth either. Is. So, you know, they, they're trying to find that. Wet fly will always work. Mm -hmm. And engineers, too. I've noticed there's lots of engineers 
Yeah, it, it, it just, that it's a type of psyche. Not that anybody can just enjoy doing them, but to get into it and know the Latin names and know all that type of thing, you know, it takes a certain type of personality. It, you're making that me giggle bad. thinking about your daughter, 10 minutes fly fishing history. It's, it's equivalent to trying to interview Jack Dennis in two hours. So your story is this big. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next week for part two of my conversation with Jack here on Anchored.